0: Hello and welcome to Amplify. That's Kevin Volans, string quartet number nine, and we're going to hear from him later with an interview I recorded last week in London after his 70th birthday concert at the Wigmore Hall. I'm joined once again by Yvonne Ferguson. How are you, Yvonne?
1: I'm okay, Jonathan. You're fully recovered from your London trip.
0: I've been out and about on my travels and had a great few days in London, which you will hear more about. This is the subject of the podcast. I came back with some audio gifts of interviews with jenny walsh and kevin volans and a number of others as well which we'll be featuring on later podcasts so yeah all in all a very very productive trip and we're five episodes into this podcast now i don't know if if it's the same for you it really seems like a long time since we recorded our first episode
1: Yeah, it does seem quite a while back now and quite interesting to reflect back on the episodes that we've had quite different, covering a real diversity, the diversity that is the landscape of contemporary music in Ireland and reflective, I think, of what's happening currently, but also reflecting back on um, music of uh, recent years and, and people who were key to the development of contemporary music in Ireland.
0: See, it's an enjoyable project to work on and uh, we hope to bring you more in this series. If you haven't listened to some of the previous episodes, do give them a listen back. So, like I said, I was in London last week. The purpose of my visit wasn't to witness the uh, British general election and the, the aftermath of it, but it was actually to see two concerts, one of which was a... ...concert by Kevin Volans, his 70th birthday concert, and that took place in the Wigmore Hall. And also to see Jennifer Walsh's opera Time, Time, Time at the London Contemporary Music Festival. This performance took place on the Saturday, the 14th of December, and it was at a packed venue at the University of Westminster... And I spent time during the rehearsals and spoke to some of the people involved in the production. And you'll hear shortly from Jennifer Walsh herself, philosopher Timothy Morton, performer MC Schmidt and the sound engineer for the production who's also a composer and a performer, Una Monahan. The extract is about 32 minutes long. And as you'll hear, Jenny talks about many other subjects as well as her opera. So here it is now. And I hope you enjoy it.
2: Monet would work on up to 14 different canvases at a time, split up by time of day and weather conditions. There was a group of five co-commissioners, Sonic Acts in Amsterdam, Borealis in Norway, Ultima also in Norway, Merzmusik in Berlin, and London Contemporary Music Festival with the Serpentine Galleries here in London. I sort of had the role of the director because it's putting it together. So. I'm really, really lucky, we have a fantastic team. Emily Moore, who's the producer, does a fantastic job of getting everything done, and she has a tremendous eye for detail. And then having Aideen Cosgrove as the lighting stage designer, and Una Monaghan as the audio engineer. I think the musicians regard every member of the team as an equal member. It's, there isn't a separation between the so-called tech crew and the artistic crew, because we know that what Aideen and Emily and Una do is is just completely vital to making the whole project function. So. I'm lucky in that there's a great team, but still at the end of the day with a sprawling project like this in that you have, you know, eight musicians, a philosopher, (laughs) three production crew and you sort of have to make it all work together with this, also this huge, vast subject. It's raining. It's dawn.
3: It's misty. I'm Tim Morton. I write sentences about ecological awareness, and when I'm not doing that, I'm writing the libretto for Time, Time, Time. Jenny and I met in 2016 in November. We were doing a dialogue together in Copenhagen about her piece, Everything is Important, which is about these funny things I call hyperobjects. After we talked a little bit, she said, well, would you like to write an opera with me? I thought, this is never going to happen to me again. I was so touched and honored to do that. She's a very open process person and she just let me write whatever I wanted so I splurged a lot of stuff and happily she cut it down to the 11 pages that actually works. So here we are doing it. It's very easy to confuse time with the measurement of time and actually the sort of one size fits all way that we have in our world, especially this neoliberal world that we have, has made it very, very difficult for people. There's a whole kind of class thing and there's a whole gender politics around time. All kinds of um, issues are related to this thing we call temporality. And in a way, time is really a kind of feeling rather than dots on a line. We wrote this opera with a view to trying to like allow people to experience that, right? So literally by Allowing people to experience just different types of measurement even, you get to see the gaps between them and you get to have some kind of different sort of feeling for it. Spending a lot
4: of time in museums. There's a way of saying that now that is to do with crying rather than productivity, except There's a productivity guru with your name on them. Because the whole point of modern life seems to be to discover the inner productivity guru. My name is Martin Schmidt. I run a record store. I'm a curator of a tiny wretched venue in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Tim's mouthpiece in Time Time Time. Jen is an amazing composer in that she is extremely trusting of everyone that, who play in it. There were a handful, maybe more than a handful, of elements introduced as possible musical events that would occur over the time period of this thing. We improvised for hours and hours with this ensemble and then we thought this bit was good and we did that over and over, day after day, with the kind assistance of uh, the,
3: the music about.
4: The, Yeah, the music gabau, of course. And so they gave us this time and space to do this, and we assembled all these events. We I tried a bunch of Tim's texts. Jen tried a bunch of Tim's texts. We narrowed it down to the 11 pages from the 176 pages that he gave us, and that is the piece
2: we had this 2 week development period in amsterdam so you know, I spent you know, a very long time researching time, talking with Tim Morton. Tim and I would have Skypes regularly. And then when we were in the same city, we would hang out, constantly sending each other messages back and forth, generating texts. Me, you know, going to Greenwich here in London, shooting video, going to the National Physical Laboratory, which is where they have the atomic clocks for the UK, uh, shooting footage there. Uh, going to the Isle of Wight, uh, which is one of the key uh, the key sites in the UK for dinosaur fossils. So going down there, shooting dinosaur foot casts on the beach. So there's just this huge, intense research process where you're generating huge amounts of material.
3: We basically talked once a week for two years. What we talked about, I'm not quite sure. Um, I remember Jen going to somewhere in Utrecht and. A lot of boy philosophers asking her, what is your ontology of time? Because they were like, you know, they're trying to triangulate me via her, right? and try, Or triangulate her via me. And she said, well, Tim and I don't talk like that. We talk about emotion, you know. As someone who writes stuff and, and, and thinks for their job, right? Emotions are from the future. It's the opposite of what you think therapy is. Emotions are like unspoken yet, thoughts and feelings that you haven't yet been able to put into words, they're too complicated or unspeakable or overwhelming. The idea or the concept is just the receipt that pops out of the cash register at the end. So in a funny way, the words are the past, concepts are the past and feelings are the future. Does he
4: really think?
2: I mean, does he really, really think?
4: That in that seed pod, that
2: Like it's
4: going to pop open and he'll sort out the the tragedy tragedy of of the day. day. The tragedy created Created by by his his machine, Because it used so much electricity,
2: (laughs) not not to to mention the refrigerants. And then this time last year, like myself and Lee and Anya did a show in Cafe Otto, just the three of us, and I said to them, You know i'll just bring the two binders of all my research notes and i'm just going to put on a a random playlist of lots of the video that i've shot of the atomic clocks and the dinosaurs and we're just going to improvise a show that is a way of us testing this material out together as a trio in public so that's a different way of working also in that uh, you sort of see what it's made of when you do it in front of the public as well and so then by february i had given everybody what we call the working score, which was like a huge document which laid out sort of the dramaturgy of of how it would work, the different sort of scenes or sections, um, ideas, some really tightly defined of what text would be used, some saying there's a pool of text, Martin and I will draw from this pool, some really, really specifically notated, some with recordings saying, listen to this recording and, you know, make the sounds, find a way to make these sounds. So folders and folders of material, um, and huge amounts of sound files as well. So that material went to the musicians. So when we came to Amsterdam to meet, there's a huge amount of material already prepared. But then we're also working and somebody says, hey, I can make this really cool sound. And we go, oh, that's amazing. Okay, who else can do something next to that? And that's where it becomes magic and it becomes alive because rather than trying to just learn something, you know, that you're just trying to recreate in a way, um, you're trying to like sort of recreate some of the ideas but then add add things as well that you can't predict. But maybe by then, may- by then
4: there won't be plugs,
2: plugs or, or plug, plug holes, holes or, or
4: world future. or future. <laughs> just some guy,
2: some guy with
4: a machine pointing at something that is no longer there.
3: Ecological awareness is really to do with knowing that things are happening on at least more than one scale at once, both of time and space. And sometimes those scales are really different. Um, There's this concept of scale variance, right? So, you know, you start your car, it has an internal combustion engine. Statistically, you're not doing anything to the planet, and if I was going to have one message to say to people, well one message would be we are the asteroid, because it's kind of like we're the force that's causing this mass extinction right now. But the next one is you're not guilty. You're not guilty as an individual person. And, you know, we all kind of know who's really guilty. It's the people who knew that fossil fuels were doing this for 50 years and hiding. The issue has to do with knowing that on the one hand when you start your car, nothing's really happening to the biosphere as a whole on the other hand billions of those things are doing something huge right so there's this funny gap and i feel like a lot of the a lot of the opera is about the gap between different kinds of timescale so you know there's a bit where suddenly it's the jurassic period right there's a bit where suddenly you're at the edge of the solar system now at the edge of the solar system stuff is so cold that it is as if only moments had passed since the birth of the solar system. So there are objects out there that are like, literally frozen in time, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, and going by super, super slow. And it's really a kind of weird duet between me, who's kind of breathing and kind of trying not to look at the harpist, because my job is to pretend to meditate, which very luckily is the same as meditating, and the harpist, Anya, um, who's playing these very isolated, very powerful notes with indeterminate gaps between them. You know so that on the one hand that's the edge of the solar system on the other hand that's a zygote or a blastocyst or something in in the uterus right it's just that that kind of strange floating quality so it's two different times at once
2: it would be really ridiculous to reject the thousands and thousands of hours of experience that everybody has like why wouldn't you want to draw on that and ask for people's opinions the idea that that um one person you know, knows everything about the piece is, is, is incorrect. So somebody needs to make the final call at the end of the day because otherwise things won't move smoothly. As far as I'm concerned, up to that point where you say, let's do this or let's do that, or let's make this pause 10 seconds longer or not, it's really important to get the input from as many different people as possible. And it's also a much more fun way of working, you know, because things might happen that you couldn't expect.
4: it's a matter of trust. You know, if you have good people then you don't have to be an autocrat. I think she's assembled a good team so we're not a bunch of jackasses that need uh, herding or whatever. I've been in both kinds of bands, certainly. I've been both kinds of person too. (laughs) How do you decide uh, exactly who
0: to collaborate on a project such as this?
2: Well. It's usually a combination of two things. There's people maybe you've worked with before that you think there's something there and I think we can go deeper. Then there's also people that you haven't worked with before that you think, I don't know these people but I think it could work really well. But then you're also trying to balance personality types, what instruments people play, how they play them, their energy. For example, it was very clear to me right from the get go that it should be myself and MC Schmidt that would be the people who would carry most of the text in the piece. So that was very clear to me. But if you had four versions of myself and MC Schmidt on stage, you'd probably all go insane by the end of the the first act. So then you're looking for people like Lee Patterson and Anya who have this really fantastic, amazing energy on stage, but it's very different to how Martin and I operate. So we all hold each other in balance. Those are considerations, I think.
5: I'm Una Monaghan. I am a sound engineer, harp player, uh, composer, and I'm working on Time 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 as their sound engineer.
0: So how did you, how did you end up uh, coming to work on this project?
5: Um, Jan just gave me a call. Um, I'd, I'd shared a gig with her before uh, for moving on music, so I met her that night. And then it was some months after that she rang me, but not for music, for sound engineering. So uh, I was just really pleased to be involved because I really love her work. I really loved the process that was involved here because when we were contacted, it was just at the before the first performance. So there was a week of kind of prep in Amsterdam before it was premiered. And um, Jen's method of working there was beautiful because it had everybody in at that point for that week. You know, uh, Tim and her had done obviously the composition and the writing work but um, when the piece the final parts of the piece got put together everyone was involved there so all of the musicians me as the sound engineer and and Aileen everyone was in together and Emily Uh, so you had sort of had to make it as we went along in that way. It wasn't a given that it would be a multi-channel piece at the very start but the the capabilities of the venues and the, the material really lent itself to to working in that way. The traditional
2: way that composers are educated is to think about it just purely ensemble. So they think frequencies, you know, do we have enough instruments that are gonna play high frequencies, enough instruments that are gonna play low frequencies? Do we have different qualities of timbre? Do we have instruments that can make very, you know, non-pitched sounds versus pitched sounds? I think about all of that, but then I also think in a piece like this, well, what are the personalities of the people? You know, how are we all going to fit together? And with free improvisers, people have their own territory, you know, that they're sort of investigating. So you sort of think, okay, this person, their territory is a little bit more like this. And this person, this, I think this would be a good complementary fit. So you think slightly differently to regular orchestration. The important The important thing My presence is there.
3: performing in the opera. The reason why is that we've sort of thought that it would be important not to have the guy who wrote the words be this Svengali guy kind of behind the stage, behind the scenes, you know, but just to be another member of the band. And I'm from a family of musicians so just psychologically it's very very nice to be with musicians again. Everybody's much more huggy than they are in my job where everyone's always dissing each other all the time and looking down their nose because I'm a scholar. And so it's it, it's very nice and fulfilling for me to do that. Plus, also, it's sort of like I'm the thought instrument, right? So I'm I'm meditating. I'm being hugged right now. That's very nice to be hugged by Martin. Thank you, mate. You going to continue that or? Oh no, know oh, you broke. Okay, I, yeah. I did
4: not mean. No. Stop talking by that. No, <laughs> that was not no, a passive aggressive hug. No, 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 no.
3: That was a beautiful.
4: I was like, oh, we're. It's nice that we're huggy, that's nice. It really is actually, it really is. First hour of grief is yours and yours alone. Own it in this first hour of dedicated proactive focus. Establish one or two top grief priorities. Then identify and reach a grief milestone for one or both of these priorities. Create some momentum for your grief project. Not only for this first hour, but for the days, the weeks, the months and years ahead.
2: This team, you know, will do a run. And we'll say, okay, great. And somebody will say, let's just do it again. <laughs> you know, because, because they just enjoy playing and, and they all have a stake in it. The credit, it says very, very clearly, like the music is by myself in collaboration with, and everybody's names are listed. And if I can be very explicit from even sort of a financial administrative sense, I received the commission fee, but we all split the royalties. I like working this way, you know, it's common in theater, it's common in dance. Mm. It would be totally normal, li- like in a dance company.
0: But not so common in, in, in so-called serious music or classical music. And that's that's what I kind of wanted to, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, and um, it sort of neatly segues into this question. I mean you know just thinking about this this whole kind of classical new music tradition and how composers write works that are performed by performers and that work takes on an independent life mm-hmm. from the composer and can be performed without them and you know so much of the so-called music ecosystem is really geared up to support this mm-hmm. I mean, does this ever cause problems or issues for composers like yourself in terms of working in, in a slightly different more collaborative way or is that model changing do you find?
2: I would say that that model it highly highly privileges composers from trained backgrounds and a lot of those composers tend to be people who would come from more middle class backgrounds so the privilege begets privilege so I know that I sort of shift how I'm working from project to project so I did an orchestra piece this year there's no way we can devise it You know, like with an orchestra piece, you don't have that much rehearsal time. You actually really need the conductor because the conductor's gonna wrangle everybody and get them to do what's needed. So in that case, I I know that I just need to produce a score. The score needs to be precisely notated. The score needs to have an absolute minimum of problems or questions or issues so that the rehearsals will move as smoothly as possible. This idea that the composer is the sole author of the piece, it's embedded in how we talk about musicians. We say, you're going, to see a, a, you're going to see Beethoven. The composer's name goes first. Sometimes the contributions of the performers aren't really recognized. So there are a lot of pieces where the composer would have had to work a lot with the performer and the performer is sort of demonstrating sounds. They've maybe spent a lifetime developing on their instrument, and then the composer's using those in the piece. You know, if you even think of Eistone, Eistone doesn't have performers in it. It has composers, you know, and, like there's amazing actors. It's sort of their structurally this idea that like the composer is the sole author. That also means they make the royalties. They get the commission fee, you know, um, and the performer is supposed to get the glory of just playing it. One of the things I think is brilliant about Ireland at the moment is that there's a lot of interesting underground experimental music for those are sort of, they're not terms that are easy to define but I think of like Open Ear Festival that I was playing at in June and it was just brilliant and Orla O'Dwyer had this amazing piece, this accompaniment for captives, probably one of the best things I've seen in years you know. And it was such a wonderful festival because you had people like Amanda Fury, you know, who did her composition PhD in Princeton. And she's doing, you know, a prepared piano performance in the pub. And I do a solo set and Anya does her set. But then there's also David Kitt doing a techno set and people are dancing. This is really phenomenal. But that festival does not have the same level of funding from the Arts Council as, say, for example, New Music Dublin. You know, they don't have that structural support in place. They've got to fight for it more. They've got to try and sell tickets and things like that. The biggest asymmetry I see in Ireland, for example, is that you have huge, even if it's being reduced, even if it's being cut, there's still proportionally so much more structural funding for what we consider educated classical music than there is for festivals like Open Ear or even like an old festival like Hunter's Moon. How do you sort of redistribute it so that the entire ecosystem all get some support so that you don't have festivals like going bankrupt because they can't pay their artists or you have artists who are having to play for little or no, you know, money or just for the sheer love of it. You know, you don't say to your plumber do you want to fix my taps just for the sheer love of plumbing, just because yeah. you you really enjoy it? You don't do that, you know? And yet in, we're, we still work in a line of work where at times people do expect you to work for nothing. There's a young Irish guy, Owen Murray, young writer, and he's doing a column for The quiet. it's called Os Ord, and it's a monthly column about Irish underground music. And you're thinking, like, when in the past would you have seen, like, a British-based, publication doing a monthly column about what's happening in weird Irish music. So that's what I focus on because mm. I look at that and I think that's fantastic. You know, Owen's doing this that, and people who've never been to Ireland are reading about what's going on. For my generation, I think there was a generation older than us, between 10 and you know, 40 years older than us in Ireland, who did have structural support that was not available to us when we were coming up. There's a lot of composers now functioning in Ireland in their 60s and 70s who got into A-Stone when they were in their 30s. And as a result, they never had to worry about a teaching job or anything like that. Whereas my generation have all been teaching. And if you think really fine composers like Sean Clancy on that Ryanair flight every Monday morning, Andrew, you know, based in Birmingham also. So I think that when you engage with the younger generation, it also helps you realise they're going to feel that way about us. (laughs) The way that we would think, imagine if you hadn't had to teach the last 10 years of your life, you didn't have to teach. Uh, even though I do enjoy teaching. And so that also makes me aware of the privilege that I have when the 23-year-old kids will be like, oh, she's she's a professor job, like, her life's easy, you know? And so, so you realize, okay, it's these same cycles. Every generation thinks that either the pe- previous people have it easier or the younger people have it easier. And there's ways in which we all have it easier and harder. So let's just try and help each other out, you know? And, and at least if you're older, let's try and take care of the kids who maybe are a little bit more vulnerable than us or just barely finding their feet. Imagine mission control, but before the invention of electricity.
0: So many composers, Irish composers and performers, that they've made London their... Home mm-hmm. uh, and the UK, their home, and there's there's a re, you know, I really get the sense of there's a vibrant musical community here because of it. Do you see that changing uh, as a result of the? I suppose, the wider geopolitical shifts that, that have happened over the last 10 years.
2: I remember I lived in America when Bush was elected, George W. Bush, and everybody said they were leaving and everybody said they were going to get a Canadian passport, and very few people ever did that. You know, same thing after Trump was elected, same thing after Brexit was called. So. I think that only time will tell if people feel squeezed. Here's where the colonial history in Ireland actually finally pays off for Irish people, is that in London, in the UK, you have a different status to other regular EU citizens. So all the applications that everybody has to undergo if you're from France or Germany, if you're living here, we don't have to do that. So that's a privilege and I really realise that because those forms are complicated, they're long, they're, you know, and a lot of people are getting rejected for all sorts of crazy reasons. We were sort of joking that the very last part of the opera, I sing this text where I say, take the long view, the sun will explode in five or six billion years. The one thing working on this opera taught me was spending so long thinking about time, spending so long looking at dinosaur bones, spending so long looking at rocks and crystals and touching meteorites and trying to really think this is an object that's like over a billion years old or what does it mean that this was a creature that existed this many years ago. or I spent so long and thinking about the planetary scale of things and the scale of the solar system, the scale of the universe, the idea of the Big Bang, the idea of where we are now in that cycle the idea that we're just on this tiny little pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan said, we've barely got to the moon next to us. Maybe we'll go to Mars in our lifetime. But those scales, when I really could finally let it sink into myself psychologically, I went to the Natural History Museum here, and I interviewed Paul Barrett, who's like the head paleontologist there. And I said to him, if there's one thing that you wish people really got about dinosaurs, if there's like one thing that you just you think That's the real key thing. And he said it's the idea of deep time, of these timescales which are so big that we can barely comprehend them. And that doesn't mean to say that the next five years aren't gonna be difficult. I suppose the scale of the universe, the scale of deep time that we're in, it showed me it's just ludicrous that we can't all be better to one another. Like we're here for such a tiny, tiny, tiny brief moment on mm. Earth. It's so fast. It moves so quickly. There's comfort in that, in that we know that anybody who studies history knows there's cycles and that there's movements and that things ebb and flow. That doesn't mean that there aren't casualties and that there isn't great pain. But, but the comfort to me in thinking of that is just thinking like we're here. You and I get to, to share this tiny, brief moment talking together in this these weird student pods in the in the foyer of the of the of the venue but the comfort that it brought to me where i just really thought if we can't just be here be present and just really try to just just like cherish the fact that it's so mind blowing that we exist at all
3: about a tiny tiny quantized subatomic particle it's it's doing the shimmy it isn't static it, it is it's literally vibrating and it's not by being pushed but just off of its own bat right so this whole notion that time is something that we humans own and that especially that you know white male Western whatever humans can impose upon other people that's like totally it should be over it's over as a concept Unfortunately right now there are some wily coyotes you know some of them very large with orange hair but they didn't quite realize they've already run off the cliff.
2: One of my favorite moments from the research was I was in the Natural History Museum and I was trying to think about how you you explain the scale of deep time, because different museums have different frameworks. So one framework is the universe started an hour ago. You know, the big bang happened an hour ago and like humans appeared less than a second ago, you know, Mm, so you get the scale of the time. But I was standing there trying to think about these frameworks in front of this rock. And there was a sign on the rock that said, this rock is the oldest rock you'll ever touch. You know, it's it's, you know, billions of years. Out and I'm looking at this rock and I'm touching the rock. And then my phone beefed and, and it was a message from my friend David. And it said, you know, I hate my life. I just got an allergic reaction to anti-aging skin cream. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, like, that's us right there as human beings, trying to try to try to sort of like physically witness the scale of the universe. And and we're trying to use creams to make ourselves look younger and <laughs> reverse the process of time. There's gonna be a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain. And I just hope we can fight for, resist, in the ways that we can resist. We can fight the good fight, fight for the people who are less able to fight than we are. And and take the, take the long view <laughs> that the sun will collapse in five or six billion years, and the entire thing will end, so just, think of that every day and cherish every single moment.
0: That's the site of an investigation by Jennifer Walsh with the composer and the RTE National Symphony Orchestra performing. Thanks to Jenny and all the contributors. And thanks also to the opera's producer, Emily Moore, for her help in arranging these interviews. Next, Kevin Volans on Reaching 70. And like I said, I was at his 70th birthday concert last week at the Wigmore Hall. And this included two premieres performed by Melvin Tan, Califax and the Signum Quartet. The concert was attended by a number of Irish composers whom he taught and mentored over the years. And I guess, Yvonne, this shows the esteem in which he's held by many here in Ireland.
1: Yeah, there's a whole generation of younger composers here in Ireland, Jonathan, and they're very open and, I suppose, complimentary about how Kevin Volans was a support to them in their younger years as they were emerging. I've met so many composers who've been ve- very open Open about the fact that Kevin is so generous uh, in terms of uh, nurturing younger talent, Um, and what's enjoyable about when you when you speak to Kevin Bolands, or you hear him being interviewed, you know he he doesn't hold back, he's uh, quite forthright in his opinions, um, but they're very well articulated, very well thought through. He, He has given a lot of consideration to the future of music, the current state of music, and it's. Always interesting and inspiring to to listen to what Kevin has to say about contemporary music.
0: And you'll hear a lot of that coming up in this interview about his views and the current state. And also he's got a great perspective, a great historical perspective on new music, I guess, since the post-war period right up to the the present day, given that he's studied with Stockhausen and knew Morton Feldman very well so there's a really strong connection with the tradition and with the past and also the present and the future no doubt. This interview was recorded the morning after his 70th birthday concert which is why it begins with me talking to him about being happy with the performances in the concert because he really was very very pleased with the whole concert and how it went. Here's the interview now. It must feel very good when you're actually happy with the performances of the other oh, pieces of yeah. the concert. Oh, yeah,
6: it's wonderful. It's worth the stress <laughs> and the work beforehand, you know, because, yeah. I mean, people just don't realise how many months of work <laughs> goes into something like this. But having performers from three countries meant I had to rehearse in Munich, and then I had to rehearse in Bremen when Califax came to Bremen and in London, you know, so it was flying around Europe for quite a long time, very exhausting.
0: I'd say, I'd say, Mm. but essential, essential to attain that level of performance.
6: Oh yeah, they are really the best in Europe. I mean, Califax, the wind ensemble are unsurpassed. I was very struck by reading the introductory note in
0: in the programme for the concert where you you actually said you've been more productive than ever over the last two decades but that you understand less the art of composition.
6: Um, Well, understand less what the art of composition is, slightly different.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Why is that? Is that because of a more instinctive approach or or is it something else?
6: No, it's that I think the more you know about a subject, the bigger the subject gets. So the more you know that you don't know. It's like when you're starting, you think you know a lot. And then the more you learn, the more you realise how much you don't know. And you don't even know what it really is. It's a very subtle art composition and it becomes a kind of a mystery. Really when you begin composing, you, you sort of have some rules which you make for yourself and you follow the rules and you think it's like, building a chair or building a house and you know exactly how it's done. But later on you realize it's, it's like building an organic structure and you're not quite so sure how it's done. So you have, your concepts have to be modified. And of course it gets more interesting. I find it much easier to compose now. I mean, not a problem, I get into a kind of, a zone. And I mean, it's such a terrible <laughs> word, but You get into the space and uh, very often when I finished a piece I don't know what the beginning is anymore. And I very often listen through pieces and have no idea who wrote the music. I mean I do five hour stints and uh, I start usually in summer, early in the morning. So I get five hours done before anyone else interrupts me, you know, so from five to ten. And in those times when you're fresh in the morning, I mean, you work at a fantastic rate. Once you're on track, sometimes there's a lot of fumbling around and you don't find the right starting point. Mm-hmm. But once you've found it, then you're, you're off. I've realized for real that it's more of a meditation than anything else. Mm. I knew about this when I was friends with Morton Feldman in the 80s, but I wasn't working fluently then. It's just, you begin to understand what it is to get into the material more. I knew it theoretically earlier on, and my approach was sort of architectural before, like Stockhausen, where it's all planned, and then you kind of build it after you've done the plan. It's changed to this uh, more focusing on the moment. One of the things that has helped me was, you know, computer programs coming about in 1990. Mm. Because writing in manuscript is extremely slow. Your writing is way behind your thinking. Mm. By the time you've written it down, you've actually moved 30 bars ahead or something. And you don't get to write down everything that you think. But now I can mm. type in the music sort of as fast as I think about it. That's really great.
0: You're from a generation of composers that you could say have seen some of the most. Amount of change in the new music world or new music business over your career. You were just talking about computer notation and the, yeah. the 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 difference that that has made made. I mean, how much of all of this change when you reflect on that? From you know you you uh, you're, you're composing in the mid '80s say to compare to today and everything that that's happened both technologically. Um, in terms of the business, in terms of, you know, how composers are seen, viewed. How much of that is positive change?
6: You know, I was born in the year that the tape recorder first became (laughs) commercially available. It had just been sort of invented. So that's how far back I go. But the whole idea of new music, I mean, really, as a genre, only evolved in the 50s, and electronic music, that was all during my lifetime and so on and then superstar composers in the 60s Stockhausen and Boulez and Ligeti and all those people and they had government backing so their works were presented to the world as part of the the image of a, of a state and then there was a sort of uh, decline and then cutting back um, financial Cutbacks, enormous, I mean, with Margaret Thatcher, where there was no support for serious art, really. Then the music industry turned up. I mean, it was the music business before, but it became the industry. I I always put, for me, that date is the Three Tenors as a kind of marketing thing. The great, the brilliant thing about the Three Tenors is you don't have to know their name. So they became kind of like a brand. And the music industry took over music and they've destroyed it like they've destroyed, in a way, they've destroyed serious music, like chopping down the rainforest. That's kind of what they've been doing for mm. profit. Mm. And you can either embrace that, or try and embrace that, or ignore it, and, but you ignore it at your peril. You've become marginalized. I mean, in the 21st century, things became, like everything, have become trickier, and more polarized, and, There is a kind of a populism that's invaded everything. If you recall that I wrote in those notes this better thing about duration, that now you have to write sound bites, not compositions. I mean, in my day, people were writing, not just Feldman, but other people were writing six-hour pieces. I can't submit anything to the World Music Days because I haven't got anything short enough. Because it's all five, seven, ten minutes. It's all sound bites. They want sound bites, mm. and this has only happened in music. It hasn't happened in the other arts. I mean, and I feel it really would be like going to the Louvre, and it's all hung with miniature paintings, and the curator saying, "Well, we want to give every painter a chance." You know, I mean, it's just rubbish. But basically, they they're gearing it towards the music video generation. The thing is that 10 minutes is easy peasy because it's only, it's like what we would call an exposition, you know. You can have the same idea and keep it going for 10 minutes, no problem. But after about 12 minutes you would run into problems that then either becomes obsessive compulsive or aggressive or uh, you have to do something different. But it has to be the same but different, can't be totally different. And that is extremely difficult, and for me that's where composition, as such, begins. Up to that point is just writing music.
0: So is this change, has this been driven by this whole infrastructure that's sprung up over the last maybe 30 or 40 years in terms of the administration, the the structures that have been created to
6: support new music, as it were? It is, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's the kind of arts administration that has evolved that's behind it because there is a, a pattern of thinking saying we must support. Is that word support? So it's and people, we it's must support people like me. Those people like hard. you. <laughs> it's we must support as many as possible. There's a certain pride in saying we have 250 composers for a fine art. That's not a good thing, it'd be much better to say we have five great composers. The Arts Council offers an awful lot of support, and not just the Arts Council, but I mean everybody, but for the young. And a lot of young composers get commissions or subsidized up to the age of 40 or something, and then they suddenly discover they don't have a career because it's all been based on subsidy. Mm. and then they're not eligible for any festivals. Mm. Mm. I mean, and I sound like a real old, you know, oh, you had it lucky, but (laughs) (laughs) Yorkshireman, but I got my first commission at the age of 37 Mm. from Kronos after I'd had an international hit with the first string quartet. And I think that's the way around it should be because you've proven something and then you get paid. I'm all for, for helping young composers, but helping them by not paying them, but helping them put on concerts. Right. The money should go towards, you get 5,000 euros to do a concert. Mm. That's what we did too. Mm-hmm. We got that, we could get money from the city of Cologne when I was studying there, to put on a concert. You could not pay yourself. To do that but you could you could put on the, your music and you could choose whether you're going to do for five thousand, you were going to do a solo piece and take all the money or you were going to get 10 really good musicians and give them 500 each mm. i think the subsidy and the help should be there but it, it should not feed the ego of the young composer and it should not actually feed them it should feed their music so where does that
0: ageism come from? You mentioned the Three Tenors, which was around about 1990, and, and the music business becoming the music industry. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a kind of a trickle down from that, that you've got the whole popular music industry, which is really selling the latest, which tended to always be the youngest thing, mm-hmm. the, the, the newest thing?
6: I think there's, there is a category of stars. You know, once you become a star, nobody cares how old you are, in a way, and they will carry on saying so-and-so is the world's greatest composer or whatever. But for the rest, anything under that, it all has to be cutting edge. So they're looking for something different, edgy, and preferably young, preferably good-looking. That helps too. It's all about selling the work, which has nothing to do with the quality of the work. That was the case. We wouldn't have Schubert today. He was not good at sales, you know, (laughs) as it were. He would have been a marketing disaster, Mm. and he would not exist. The book industry is a little bit similar. I think if you were James Joyce today, you wouldn't be published. Well, I mean, it is a miracle that we ever get performed, I mean, in contemporary music because we're so marginalized. Mm. I mean, when you see where all the money is going, you know, like start a makeup channel on YouTube and you make a hundred (laughs) million. I mean, if if you do it right, and that's where people's interests, I mean, the people generally speaking, Mm. that's where they lie. And it's Mm. just incredible that people put money and time into contemporary music, which is not popular. But it's a shame that we don't have government sponsorship in the sense that we're not valued in the same way as the previous generation were, where they were seen as representatives of the state in the sense that this Xenakis or Stockhausen represents the peak of our culture, intellectually and musically. Um, And so there was massive I mean, massive for a few people, but massive sponsorship in terms of putting on concerts.
0: I, I suppose I just finished by uh, by asking you, what's what? What do you think the focus musically will be for you for the for the next decade or the foreseeable future?
6: I have no idea. I mean, is the answer to that because I mean, this year was a struggle to survive. I mean, <laughs> physically. So um, all I can think about now is. When I can next lie in bed for a week, <laughs> which will be sometime in February or March, <laughs> I don't even want to think about writing another piece at this point. Obviously, I will, but yeah, yeah, difficult to tell.
0: We charge the batteries. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank. You. thank- Kevin Volans. That's all for this week and for this year. Thanks to Yvonne and Keith for all their help in putting this together. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast at cmc.ie forward slash amplify. And do please tell us what you think of the episodes by emailing us at amplify at cmc.ie or through our social media channels. We look forward to producing more episodes in 2020 and we hope to be back in mid-January with the next episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great Christmas.